Welcome on in to the Superintendent Radio Network and episode 20 of Off the Course, the podcast that takes you inside the lives and loves of golf course superintendents and other turf pros. I'm Matt Lowell, Managing Editor of Golf Course Industry Magazine, and I'm joined today by Doug Vogel. Doug is a veteran turf pro with more than a quarter of a century under his belt as a superintendent and more than three decades in the industry in all. He is currently the superintendent at Preakness Valley Golf Club in Wayne, New Jersey. He is also an accomplished researcher and writer about turf, as you might guess, and also about baseball. He is a recently renewed member of SABER, the Society for American Baseball Research. And his new book, Babe Ruth and the Scottish Game, Anecdotes of a Golf Fanatic, provides a thorough profile of the great Bambino's love of golf, where the babe played it, how he played, who he played it with, some of the biggest names of his day, and how he helped grow the game nearly a century ago. Before we dive into some Sultan of Swat conversation, a quick word from the sponsor of Off the Course, AquaAid Solutions. For more than 30 years, AquaAid Solutions has helped turf managers around the world develop comprehensive agronomic plans to produce healthy, environmentally aware, safe, natural grass playing surfaces. They're proud to deliver best-in-class solutions for management of key elements for a healthy and sustainable plant system, and their solutions include wetting agents, soil surfactants, calcium and potassium products, and worm power turf, all of which help the end user, you, optimize their agronomic programs. Incorporating AquaAid Solutions' technologically advanced active ingredients with cutting-edge equipment technology in IMANTS, Vrito Seeders, and Seagrow Mobile Grow Systems, turf managers are offered synergistic solutions delivering long-lasting agronomic value, improved aesthetics, and playability. Thanks to AquaAid Solutions for their continued support of Off the Course. And now, Preakness Valley Golf Club Superintendent, and Babe Ruth researcher, Doug Vogel. My guest again on this episode of Off the Course, Doug Vogel. He is the golf course superintendent at Preakness Valley Golf Club in Wayne, New Jersey. He is also the author of the new book, Babe Ruth and the Scottish Game, Anecdotes of a Golf Fanatic, even if you have a small and growing golf library, even if you have no golf books in your library, this is a fantastic book to add in, brand new, just published this year. Doug, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Mac. Thanks for having me. So before we get into the book and the research and Babe Ruth and so many great stories, you have worked in golf and turf For more than 30 years, more than 25 of those as a golf course superintendent, again, currently at Preakness Valley Golf Club in New Jersey. But your baseball fandom goes back so much further than that. How did you fall in love with the game in the first place? Uh, Well, you know, as a young boy, I remember getting dropped off at my grandmother's house, and we'd go in my grandfather's den, and we would sit down, and we would watch in this little black-and-white television Yankee game. Now, I'm a lifelong Mets fan, and that's my asterisk, is I started out as a Yankee watcher. I couldn't say I'm a fan because I was very little, but my grandmother loved Mickey Mantle, and that was the years, uh, you know, we were watching the Yankees stunk, the Mets stunk. This was in the mid-60s. Mantle was at the end of his career, and then, of course, you know, 1969 comes along, and uh, a nine-year-old without a team to root for, it's pretty easy to, to hook on to being a Mets fan. And it's been a roller coaster ever since. That was an incredible team, and obviously they have had the two championship seasons, but like you said, you're in your early 60s, and, and they've given you two championship seasons and, and not too much else beyond that. Well, you know, we've been, we've been close. Yeah. Uh, every 2015. Year it's, uh, yeah, it's very hopeful every year. That one year with Cardinals, that was uh, you know one game away to getting back in. But uh, you know, well, and I played baseball as a, uh, a kid. Everybody played. 
when we weren't playing baseball, pickleball, wiffle ball, running bases, you know, you name it, anything with a ball. So it's always around baseball. Growing up a baseball fan in general, growing up in the New York area, it's easy to fall in love with Babe Ruth, just this larger-than-life figure who died a little bit more than a decade before you were born. What was it about him that drew you in to more than two decades of ongoing research about Ruth and, and his love for golf? Well, for some reason, you know, as a kid, you know, I've, I've always been into history, and as a kid, you're absorbing baseball history, you know, learning about the past stars. We'd go to old-timers games, and you'd go, who's that? And, and you, know, he, you know, he was the greatest player, you know, 40 years ago, and then, you know, you research, and, you know, Babe Ruth is Babe Ruth. I mean, he's the most famous, almost the most famous person in the world. Mm-hmm. So uh, he was always around baseball, even though he had been dead. And, you know, the stories are Ruthian, as they say. And we I'd always get pulled towards the old timers and reading about them as a kid. I came across a book once in sale or a book sale or something on the baseball of fame. And, and that was uh, Ken Smith. Probably, I think it was published in the 40s, and uh, I still have it, and it's got some great stories in it, but I've always loved baseball history uh, going way back. And even as a kid, getting those old books published before you were born, how did you go from a fan to a real researcher? Because this book, I mean, this is, this is if folks don't know what Sabre is, Sabre is the Society for American Baseball Research. This is a Sabre-level book in terms of the research and the writing and the storytelling you did in here. Yeah, it's funny you mention that. I, uh, I just re-upped my membership <laughs> uh, a couple weeks ago. It's gone dormant a few years. Uh, but I've been a member of Sabre, you know, maybe five, six years. Uh, more, you know, more because of the research. You know, uh, some Sabre guys are more... Uh, you know, number crunchers, you know, the Sabre metrics mm-hmm. end of it. But I more enjoy the, uh, the research end of it. You've written regularly for industry publications, but never, and, and this is on your author page, so I don't know if I've missed one, but never, as I could find, for golf course industry. So we need to correct that this year or next year for sure. Uh, but you've, sure. you've, you've written a handful of other projects, uh, Maintaining Baltus Roll, Maintaining Ridgewood, the History of Golf Course Superintendents Association of New Jersey, uh, the 75th Anniversary Journal for the New Jersey Turfgrass Association. So while this is your first book, you've written a lot of other big projects. How do you balance the demands of a very challenging job with everyday life? Uh, you and your wife, Susan, have raised three children. You volunteer regularly. And then you have all this research and writing. How do you balance all that? How do you make the research and writing work with everything else? Well, you know, as the re- uh, your listeners have to know, this took me over 20 years uh, for various reasons, for lack of being able to balance sometimes. You know, it was a pet project. You know, my life's not depending on earning money from it. So I, uh, I put it down. Stuff with, you know, life would get in the way different things happening and uh, to be honest with you very recently uh, my wife and children really pushed me to finish it because uh, you know I do spend a lot of time with work you wrote in and, your acknowledgments that your children are probably Babe Ruth experts by osmosis now and, and it's probably the case they probably picked up a lot over the last 20 years oh yeah yeah and, and, and a lot of other baseball items but uh that is true. What are you working on next? I know you, you operate the metropolitangreenkeeper.com website, and folks can order the book through there or other online retailers. I'm sure there's direct from you as well, but what are you working on next if there is a next project? Well, sitting in a box downstairs is, uh, believe it or not, a musical I started uh, writing with a song, the lyrics, on Babe Ruth. Really? It's called Babe, Babe's New York. It's about when he came to the city in the 20, 1920s, when he came to the New York City. That's a long way away, though, but uh, yeah, that's what's sitting in a box downstairs. I started a little bit of it. I've been writing some stuff about a, a boxer named Professor. 
Donovan, the friend of mine's great grandfather, who was the world lightweight champion. And I've been doing a lot of research on that. Uh, they were putting together a uh, screenplay for that in hopes of getting a movie thing. So I was just kind of helping them out with some research. And, uh, you know, that's on the back burner also right now. And uh, I'm always, I get a chance to write one or two articles now for our, the greener side, our association newsletter of the yeah. Golf Course Superintendent Association in New Jersey. So you are a true renaissance man. You have your golf course superintendent day job. You're a published book author. You've written articles and stories. Now you're working on composing a musical and drafting a screenplay. This is this is a lot. Well, yes, it, but <laughs> it's funny. Uh, like I said, some of that's in a box. And right now, this is what I'm trying to get this. My website, which my son and has helped uh, me set that up. It's online. It's not quite running yet. We have to do a couple more items in there. So you, if you want to buy through there, uh, you will be. But, you know, and there's, I'm writing you know, little blogs for it uh, that will be on the website. Also on basic, mostly on golf course greenkeeping history. And there'll be baseball on it. So. And before we get into the book itself, again, Babe Ruth and the Scottish Game, Anecdotes, of a golf fanatic. Any tips for other hopeful superintendents turned writers on how to draft query letters or land an agent or find a publisher or anything else you need to do to see your book from an idea to a printed bound product, even if it does take 20 years? Sure. Like when I did start the uh, journey, it was all old school query letters, calling publishers and writing letters and getting, uh, you know, I didn't even really get any, you know, no thank you letters. You know, they don't even send them out anymore. I got one interested publisher. I needed to triple the size of my book, though, and I just didn't have time to do that. And to be honest with you, nowadays, the whole industry has changed and everything is, you can direct publish, you know, self-publish. It's very simple. I, my, like, I was going to self-publish, and then my family talked me into uh, publishing it on Amazon. And it's you just put the book together, you get a PDF, and you push a button, and you get a book. Hmm. And they handle everything except marketing. You can pay for them to have market, but of course now you become their partner. You, know, you get your royalties. But, you know, you agree to different ways you get the royalties. Uh, but they handle everything. They, they print it. They ship it. They collect the tax, the money, and then they send you your cut. Basically, that's how it works. And it's very simple. And it wasn't that simple maybe five years ago. Because Amazon did this previously. But it just wasn't as simple as it is right now. But it's been a very easy way to do it. Like I said, everything's changed in the world with, with all this, everything. And you can buy anything you want anywhere in the world at your front door, and you can have a book printed and have it at your front door in, in five days. It's crazy. Without getting into the financials of everything, I am curious about, you just mentioned it can be in your door in a few days. What was the turnaround from the time that you sent this in to the time you got it? I think you're, you're opening author's note, you dated it opening day 2021, which season's only about 60, 70 games in right now. I don't really remember, Matt, the exact day, but we got the PDF done. My son formatted it, and I set up the account, and he just pushes the button, sends the PDF in there, and within two days, they have what's called uh, the author's proof mm-hmm. and you just push you know however many you want printed and then they print it so you can check and then uh you know check for you know any any issues with the way it's printed color you know, stuff that doesn't look right it, it's, it's in a book form it's in the actual book so you can look at it and go oh this looks great 
paper. So then you push another button if it's okay, and they they will it goes live. It's called you push a button, it goes live. It's available for anyone to buy it immediately. And if you you know you go in and buy it, I, I don't really know this. You know, it depends on if you have Amazon Prime, how, how quick you get it. But I don't think it's uh, – you could get a book like within three days, I believe. The numbers of the, the print run, do you have to commit to a certain print run, or is it all just on-demand printed out to it's – all, It's all print-on-demand. Wow. It's called um, the uh, Kindle Direct Publishing is the actual name of the who you're working with. And it's print on demand, and they have printers all over the country. My book comes out of Delaware, and it shows up on your doorstep in, you know, two days. Now, of course, by the time this podcast airs, we'll have been just past Father's Day. This would have made a great Father's Day gift, and apologies for not getting the podcast up a couple weeks before Father's Day. But baseball season, Christmas, Hanukkah, any any other gift-giving holidays, this is an ideal book. Let's give folks a little bit of a taste. There's so many great stories from here, Doug. Again, Babe Ruth and the Scottish game, anecdotes of a golf fanatic. First off, you write early on, maybe not all of these stories are actually factual. You spoke with the legendary Sports Illustrated senior writer, Robert Creamer, uh, shortly before he died in 2012. He wrote the 1974 book, Babe, The Legend Comes to Life, still maybe the definitive Ruth biography. And he's been quoted as saying that a lot of the Ruth stories, golf and otherwise, have changed through the quote, this is such a great quote, the encrustation of time. How many of these Ruth stories in the book do you 100% believe? Um, well, he also, that's part of the warning that I put in there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you have to remember during this era, you know, we're dealing with uh, yellow journalism um, you're, you're dealing with uh, hero worship. These uh, the, the writers back then, all they wanted to do was sell papers. And it didn't necessarily, even if it's a legitimate paper like the New York Times or something, you don't know if the, if the writer was just just writing this to, to try to sell the newspaper. So that's where the yellow journalism came in. And uh, for people who don't know what it is, it was not truthful, but it was, Kind of like, oh, wow, that sounds cool. I'm going to buy the newspaper. i got to read about that. What is it? The National Enquirer is kind of right. modern-day yellow journalism. And these these sports writers, they all worship Babe Ruth, and they're not going to write how much of a bum he is. They're going to write you know, very th- things that make him look and uh, act great. So there was a lot of that you have to you know, kind of look at the stories and make your own decision. So that's why I had a little bit of a warning. And even, the, like I said, the stories that are maybe not true, or they're, they're good stories. It's fun to read. If, that's, you know, if you want to get enjoyment out of reading, you know, who cares, I guess, if it's truthful or not. I laughed, and I told you this right before we started recording, I laughed on just about every single page. One of the probably apocryphal stories he has this bet with a bar owner at Greenwood Lake that he can't drive a ball across Greenwood Lake. It's across a state line. It's about 440 yards. And the story in the book is that he does. He drives the ball 440 yards across Greenwood Lake into New Jersey. Who cares if it happened or not? The way you write it, it's hilarious. Yeah. Some of that uh, writing, you know, it is, uh, if you notice, some of it's in a little dark print, and mm-hmm. those are kind of like stories that I, not made up, but I used a lot of, I, I came across a lot of items that I couldn't really write something about, but they all fit into something and I could use them and create, uh, you know, my own narrative. You know, that's what's how writing's done a lot of times is a lot of this stuff is, I mean, people weren't, people weren't, the, the writer wasn't alive back when George Washington was, you know, crossing the Delaware River, but, you know, they can come up with narrative and give you a good, make a good story of it. You know, they're, they're not lying. They're just trying to make a, a story that's enjoyable for the reader. And I, I, I took a lot of stuff that I found and I created.
created my own narrative sometimes, and some of the stuff is actual, you know, kind of straight out reporting. And you, you can kind of see that. Um, but that all the stuff pretty much true, and the stuff that wasn't true, I called it out. You know, there's the, the one story in uh, Bermuda that's one of the biggest lies in golf. <laughs> I remember that one. Yes. So there's a lot of uh, stuff that is not true. There's uh, some stuff people, you know, people always want to hang on. You know, Babe Ruth played my course, you know, and that's great. And if you notice uh, my course, I put, you know, truthfully that it was rumored that he played at my course. I haven't come across any proof, but a lot of courses, oh, yeah, Babe Ruth played at our course. And, you know, maybe he did, maybe he didn't. But if he did, you can find it somewhere online where it was in the papers or something. One of the definitively truthful stories is that Ruth started playing in 1914. He was a rookie with the Red Sox at the time. He was 19 years old. And he started working with Che Burgess, who was the pro at Woodland Golf Club in Newton, Massachusetts. And this is just one of those little nuggets that you sprinkle throughout the book that it's just a line, and it's so interesting. Che Burgess, just one year earlier, had watched one of his other students, Francis Met, win the U.S. Open. And it goes like that for 100 pages. Big golf names just seem to follow Babe Ruth all over the course. What are what are some of your favorite big names that Ruth played with or worked with or or just kind of crossed on the golf course? Well, uh, the biggest name is probably well, you play with the two biggest names, Walter Hagen mm-hmm. and Bobby Jones. More so with Hagen, he played in tournaments with him, and one tournament I believe it was out in Ohio, the True Temper Open. There was bigger crowds following Babe Ruth in this tournament than there was Walter Hagen. And Walter Hagen at the time was the number one professional golfer in the world. But they were best friends. They both lived the same lifestyle. And uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot of stories on them that aren't in my book. Uh, maybe I left them out for reasons, but uh, they used to play golf together and then you know, go gallivanting around northern New Jersey and New York City. You know, Babe Ruth played, I know he played at least once with Bobby Jones, and, you know, Bobby Jones, uh, you know, was a big baseball fan, so it was probably a thrill for him to play with Babe Ruth. Uh, and I I do argue in here, uh, you probably see that I consider Babe Ruth the most famous golfer of his era. By default, he played golf, and he was Babe Ruth, so he was more famous than Bobby Jones, and people probably can argue that Bobby Jones was more famous as a golfer, but I'll, hold, I'll stick to my guns on that one. Babe Ruth was more famous than he was a golfer. <laughs> I think it's a fair argument, honestly, for a lot of reasons. I mean, you write in here that during spring training, back in the, especially the 20s and 30s, when guys would use spring training to get in shape for the season, Ruth would regularly play 36 or sometimes even 54 holes in a day. And he wasn't really the first baseball player to do this. He wrote that the Philadelphia A's, under the brothers Tom and John Scheib, who were part of the ownership group, uh, their family owned the A's for, gosh, more than 50 years, they hired a golf coach, Jen Scott, and won three out of four World Series right after that. Were they the first baseball team to really golf regularly, Doug? It's the first. Uh, reference I came across, and I, you know, I looked into a lot of baseball magazines, and they, they actually they hired. That's right, they hired a coach, and so they got these guys out on the golf course because it was you know walking, it was getting their legs in shape. By coincidence, they would happen to win a bunch of World Series, so the Red Sox went ahead and they decided, well, if it's good for them, we're going to do it. And uh, lo and behold, the Red Sox started peeling off a few championships there in the in the teams. Yep, I think, what was it, four out of seven. So, I mean, there's seven yeah. World Series winners there in, what, 1910 to 1918. Seven of those nine yeah. years were teams that regularly golfed in spring training. Coincidence or yeah. not, who knows? It, it looks good for the game. Yeah, yeah. I did. I thought it did. A little more spring training. The Yankees moved their spring training site to St. Petersburg 
1925. And Ruth, again, still playing 36 holes, sometimes 54 holes in a day. He would want to room right by the first tee. Like his room had to be by the first tee of a course to ensure that he played every day, which is just hilarious. Yeah. He booked himself into the, the, the hotel right near, I guess it was the, the resort. Down in Florida, a lot of the golf courses were actual resorts, so he would book his rooms into the resorts. And the Yankees didn't mind that because it, it kind of guaranteed that he would play instead of, you know, playing at night. You know, he'd get, he'd get out on the golf course spending time staying in shape. So they didn't really mind too much that he didn't quite room with the rest of the Yankees, probably at some, you know, cheaper amenities down the street somewhere. I mean, he was Babe Ruth. There were years he made more money than the president of the United States. That's correct. Herbert Hoover. Yep. I, well, I had a better year than he did, was Ruth's famous That's line. One of the other points of contention, and this was brought up by Ty Cobb, who would become a very big golfer in retirement. Uh, John McGraw, the legendary longtime manager of the Giants, uh, and even Ruth's own manager, Miller Huggins. They often said that golf would hurt a batter's eye. Babe Ruth refuted that statement throughout his entire career. You are a baseball-loving golf course superintendent, and granted this is a century later, but where do you stand on this, Doug? Does playing golf hurt your batting eye? I don't believe so. <laughs> I mean, I, you look at the, the, the celebrity golf tours, and more so the hockey players and the baseball players, because of their eye, they're the best players on these celebrity golf leagues. They have such a great eye. It, it improves their golf game. It doesn't hurt their hockey or baseball swings either. Uh, you know, these guys are still hitting home runs and, and scoring from the blue line, you know? I don't know if you've ever noticed that. I have, but and yet, for whatever reason, the biggest athlete golfers these days seem to be Tom Brady, Aaron Rodgers, Steph Curry, fewer baseball and, and hockey players, at least on the big te- televised events. Yeah, but are they any good? I, only, I haven't really seen those guys. I just remember what, the, the great baseball players were pitchers, actually. Mm-hmm. Maddox and John Schmoltz. And one of them is actually, uh, I think Schmoltz just qualified for the U.S. Senior Amateur, maybe, or Senior Open, uh, one of yeah. those. Yeah, that great Braves they, rotation. They all golf. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I was going to save this for later, but let's let's just address this now before we get into the really fun Babe Ruth stories uh, from really the last 15 years of his life in golf. Where do you think Babe Ruth stands in the history of athletes golfing? Because you wrote at his peak when he was playing, he was about a five handicap. He hit two holes in one. He could go on these incredible runs where he would birdie hole after hole after hole. There were there were a few big moments we'll get into here. And the era was different. Uh, there wasn't the scrutiny from the media. But where do you think he stands in the history of athletes and, and other celebrities who golf? Well, I think he'd be one guy they'd always want to. If after they read this book, you know, they always say, who are the four people or who would you want your foursome to be? You know, and they always pick Tiger Woods and, you know, Jack Nicholas. And I think after reading this book, people are going to want to say, you know, I'd like Babe Ruth to be in my group. Uh, I, I think uh, he held his own. I, I, I think uh, he may not have been as good, though, as we want him to be. Uh, he just. Uh, he did have concentration problems, and uh, I think uh, when the competitive end of his game, he'd never really fared too well competitively. Uh, there's a few tournaments he won long drive here and there, but he was pretty good. I mean, enough where when he was a member at Leewood, I believe he he was medalist in the club championships, and he went to the finals once, maybe twice. He was in the quarterfinals in a, in a you know, a club situation. So I, I, as, as, 
as a an athlete golfer, I'd say he'd be in. I'd put him in the in the top fifty. That's fair, I think. Yeah, the, yeah. I'm being honest. I'm as honest as Abe. You know, he, he's the subject of my book, but there's a <laughs> lot of you know great golfers out there. He seems a little bit, and and tell me what you think, but. In reading about all of Babe's golfing exploits, it seems like he may have somehow inspired John Daly a little bit. He he seems like a precursor to John Daly. There's also a little bit of current Bryson DeChambeau in him in terms of just trying to smash the ball as far as he can and, and play it from there. A lot of his antics on the course, he got kicked off of courses and, and you know cursed up blue streaks, so he wasn't quite buttoned up as a lot of members so kind of running counterculture to things it seems like there's a little bar stool in him uh what do you think would kind of be his legacy if he were here today golfing today who would he be compared to hmm. that's a good question well i think uh, john daly's very obvious because john daly's a big you know he's a, a fan favorite you know babe ruth loved everybody he was uh i don't know Early, early in his career, he was didn't have the social polish needed to play country club golf. But you know, remember a lot of times he's playing was in resort courses, munis. He played. He played everywhere. He didn't care as long as it was a golf course, and he really didn't care if who he's playing with, if it was uh, you know a big businessman or uh, you know a greenkeeper. You know. You know, he had friend. He was friends with a, uh, a bunch of greenkeepers around the country, and you know, he was known to play with them. Played with teammates, teammates' friends. You know, and just the regulars. He was he was just a regular guy. So, yeah, I would have to say John Daly's very obvious pick, and you know, maybe you're right. John Daly saw, uh, saw that and uh, saw himself a little favored in him. Your point about the greenkeepers, he regularly played with Joe Sylvester, you wrote in your book, uh, the greenkeeper. At, and I even asked you the pronunciation, and you you said it as best you could, but this is a course that closed over 70 years ago. Uh, Pomanock Country Club, uh, which hosted the 1939 PGA Championship, closed in 1949. Uh, that was Joe Sylvester. He also would just make friends with greenkeepers almost wherever he went. You had a little story about him talking about mowers and shop uh, with Lester Moffat, Wallkill yeah. Club in Franklin, yeah. New Jersey. Are there any other stories about him just spending time with, with greenkeepers, going out, playing with them? Joe Sylvester was, you know, back then, he was one of those uh, pro greenkeepers. But they had met when Sylvester was the pro greenkeeper at St. Albans, which was Dave's home course probably his first you know, true home course where he went to play every day. Uh, that was in Queens, New York. But the government took it over and made it into a hospital during World War II. So you know, Joe Sylvester loses his job, and then he gets, ends up moving over to Pomanoc. Uh, I believe he was only the greenkeeper there, though. He was not the pro. Okay. And so they used to play uh, tournaments together, like you know, two-man tournaments. You know, Les Moffat, he was only uh, friends with him because he used to play at Wallkill, which is, you know, way out western New Jersey, very quiet area with a, with a teammate of his uh, that lived and grew up out there. And he, uh, you know, the, the, where, where I find this story out, when I was doing my history uh, journal on the Superintendent Association of New Jersey, I come across, I'm reading the old minutes. You know, and I come across the minutes, and it talks about uh, Les Moffat having Babe Ruth play his course over the weekend, and, and you know he shows up at the next meeting, and he just gets up there. And, and Les Moffat was well known as a real professional. You know, uh, people asked him what he was doing, how to take care of everything. So he gets up at the next meeting, and out of character, just starts talking about. Yeah, Babe Ruth played my course, and uh, you know, we were talking about uh, Ford's and Tractor because his, you know, Babe Ruth owned a farm up in Massachusetts. They were talking; they had the same piece of uh, tractor equipment, and they were talking 
together about it. And I guess Dave must not have run properly and Les kind of helped him out with it, gave him some advice what to try when he went back home. Of course, you know, I think Ruth sold that farm. He held on to it a little bit after being traded to the Yankees or sold to the Yankees. And I believe he sold it. Uh, he didn't go up there much after that when he became a Yankee, but it was up in Massachusetts. So, yeah, and then there was a Walter Grego was a pro greenkeeper that he played with at another course that uh, doesn't exist anymore. And he um, always sought out the common person. He was uh, very comfortable uh, hanging out with the common people. You mentioned there's so many fun stories, and, and I've got a list of them that I, I kind of want to mention. And if there's anything that I don't bring up that you want to talk about, please, you're the, the Bambino expert here, Doug, so just interrupt me. But okay. t- tying into the, the common man, 1932, he's still playing, and he's voted the first president of the American Left-Handed Golfers Association, which I am a left-handed writer and eater. I don't golf left-handed, but I had no idea this organization ever existed. He's voted in uh, at a meeting at Shaker Heights Country Club, just outside Cleveland, not too far from our offices. And he does it during a four-game series in Cleveland. He hits like three or four homers, and then he becomes president of the Left-Handed Golfers Association, just hanging out with regular people. Yeah, I mean, uh, they went after the the number one left-handed golfer in the world. Yeah. You know, they needed, they wanted credibility for the association because left-handed golfers at the time, and maybe some to this point, to this day, uh, were considered uh, freaks. And uh, you know, if we have Babe Ruth as our president, who's going to say anything else bad about us and yeah it was crazy you know he had four game series in cleveland and one day you know they played day games back then and after one of the games they drove over to the country club and they had their meeting and they voted him in as president did you find much about his tenure as president was it a year was it two did he actually do anything or was it just kind of a figurehead to bring attention to the organization as, as far as I have found, it was figurehead only. Okay. I, I joke in there about how he, you know, he missed the, the, you know, the first left-handed championship. That's right. They had he he, he he missed his tea time because he was busy, you know, at his office uh, hitting the home runs. You know, it was uh, it was it was uh, more of an honorary figurehead type position. And I came across nothing where he actually played in any of their events. You also mentioned in 1935, not long after he retired uh, from a very short stint with the Boston Braves, he was still only 40 years old. And that whole summer, now that he's not playing, he announced that he was making a run at that year's U.S. Amateur, which I believe Lawson Little won. It was at the country club on the east side of Cleveland, again with Cleveland tie. Uh, And for weeks, the papers were covering him, and he was playing all these practice rounds. He would go to winged foot, and you write, he never even applied to play in the tournament, but he, he talked a good game for weeks or months on end. Yeah, well, I came across a, a photo spread in one of the uh, golf magazines, and it was, you know, Babe Ruth is planning a, a run at the U.S. Uh, amateur, and he, it was, you know, the big golf magazine of the day, and he, so he it was covered in the papers, you know, he's practicing here, here, here. And then I never found anything, you know, that reason why he didn't play or I, I couldn't find anything that in the newspaper, because you could find Babe Ruth stories in every day in the newspaper. Mm-hmm. Whatever the guy did, they covered, you know, was he fishing, you know, was he bowling, playing golf, you know, it, it's in the papers. It's very easy to, to find. But I never came across anything where he actually played in the amateur. And I, I went to the USGA golf house, to the museum and library. And it's a great museum there. And in the library, I was, you know, looking around and asking him. And there was no record of him ever even applying. You know, there was the issue where back then, the amateurism was questioned if you were a professional, even in another sport. 
no application found, so they never ruled whether he was an amateur or not. That was the other issue. I could have maybe he just got, you know, cold feet, said, I'm not going to bother applying. They're going to say I'm a, a professional. Right. The line was very strict back then. They even ruled against uh, someone we're going to mention here in the next story, which was Babe Didrickson. Uh, she was barred from events because she had been professional in, a, in other sports, not in golf, but you've been a professional right. in something. You, you can't be in the amateur. That's right. Yeah, she was actually barred, and it was pretty close time-wise to when he was thinking of playing in the amateur. And she did get barred. And he even said, you know, if the babe got barred, you know, it doesn't look good for me. Uh, and it didn't matter, right, like you said. It didn't, you didn't have to be a professional in golf. If you were just a professional athlete, you couldn't play in the golf amateur ranks. Period. One of the wilder stories in your book is this 1937 exhibition at Fresh Meadow Country Club. And I'm reading this and I just keep picturing the Sunday gallery at the PGA Championship following Phil Mickelson at the Ocean Course at Kiowa. Because this is Babe Ruth and Babe Didrickson against a mysterious character, and I don't want to ruin too much about him, named John Montague. And then a uh, New York State women's champ, Sylvia Annenberg. So it's at Fresh Meadow Country Club. They wind up only playing nine holes. It is just a wild, wild day. Uh, what can you tell me about that story? That was just, it was so fun to read, but I want to hear your perspective. Well, it's these events back then, you know, golf was kind of in its infancy when it came to tournaments, uh, really only. People that played golf would even bother to go, but Babe Ruth drew a whole different type of crowd to these events, and they were fundraisers, you know, for charity. And he uh, would bring a baseball crowd, basically, you know. And baseball fans are a little rowdier than golf fans, uh, and the etiquette is totally different to sports. So you bring, you know, Babe Ruth in there. Babe Dietrichson, who was a you know, very famous athlete, and this guy, John Montague, who uh, there was, uh, at the time, was a, they called him Mysterious Montague, because people have heard what type of a golfer, how great he was, but he never entered any events. And then uh, uh, Sylvia Annenberg was just another female New York champion. So they're playing in this fundraiser and you know they sell I don't know 5,000 tickets or something a dollar a piece and 10 12,000 people show up and uh, you know there was no such thing as setting up golf courses with ropes back then people just came and watched even in, in, in the professional ranks there was no ropes no gallery control and these people show up and they're baseball fans and they're rowdy and they're uh, they're out of control. Uh, you know, they, they don't know you're not supposed to touch a golf ball. They're picking them up and putting them in their pockets as souvenirs. That the, the, the crowd was, you know, they didn't know that it's dangerous to, you know, stand in front of someone swinging a club. <laughs> there was human line tunnels. The, the photos are unbelievable of that event where you barely see the fairway that's just the people are lined up. There's people up in the trees. You just look, you just see young kids up in these trees. You know, we're not talking two kids. We're talking 10, 15 people up in a tree. So it was a very crazy event. And uh, they, they, they were very lucky they got out of there alive. I mean, the people weren't intentionally doing They just didn't know better. I mean, Ruth got knocked on his butt, didn't know where his caddy was. Dietrichson being uh, uh, Babe Dietrichson was pretty tough abroad, and she just dropped her shoulder and bulldozed through the crowd, you know. And, and it finally they called the event off, and uh, like I said, they were lucky to get out of there alive. And uh, they still collected the money, and the, and the charity, you know, still got the money. So everything worked out that way. And the poor greenkeeper, uh, right. Eddie, o yeah, Mr. O'Brien uh, was told, you know, get this place back in shape.
in this area that time of year. It's soft, you know, in the, the fall, and they just trampled the whole place. You know, no etiquette at all. <laughs> I think you wrote that the repair bill for Ed O'Brien was about $4,000, which works out to about seventy five grand today. It's not an insignificant sum. And, uh, no. you know, have it ready by the next weekend, you said. There would be no respite right. for Ed O'Brien. Poor guy. And, and Fresh Meadow. Fresh Meadow was a pretty, you know, big club. They, they've had big events there, you know, uh, national events. Uh, you know, it's no longer with us, but it's another. There is a Fresh Meadow. The, cl- the clubhouse, the club itself is still in existence, but that golf course is long gone. You and mentioned a few minutes ago that, Ruth didn't play particularly well in sanctioned events. He was a tremendously fun golfer. He had some great moments. But the 1939 Stoddard Bowl, a few years after his retirement, might have been, you called it, his finest moment on a golf course. And it was the Stoddard Bowl, a triangular match play event. It pitted amateur players from Long Island and Westchester and New Jersey, kind of like the Ryder Cup. What was it about that day that made it so great for Babe Ruth? A few years earlier, Babe Ruth was asked to play on the Long Island team, which is the Stoddard Bowl is a big thing up in the metropolitan area. It's all the best amateurs. And to be asked to be on that team, it's an honor. And he was asked to be on the team, and his first few years he played, and he didn't end up scoring any points. He may have scored a half point here, but he lost a half point. So he was like a net zero for a couple of years. And, uh, you know, was the thrill of having Babe Ruth on your team? Did it, you know, because this was an important event, did it run its course? Because he wasn't on the team mysteriously uh, for another year, for a year after his poor performances. And could never find out anything why. I'm still looking, actually, why he wasn't invited again. Uh, I mean, the obvious thing is is because he he stunk. His his competitive playing was horrible. Uh, He didn't get the team any points. But somewhere, like a couple years later, he's re-invited, and um, he's very thankful for that. And he said, I'm going to make up for all my bad play, and and lo and behold, they get out there, and after nine holes, he's down, uh, if I remember, maybe seven shots. Uh, now he's playing against two other people, you know. So he's down like three shots to one guy, four to the other. They're standing on the 10th tee, so he's got nine holes left. And he goes on and just puts together this mythic performance thinking putts, you know, from everywhere, birdies, birdies, birdies. He ends up winning full points, and, and, and it was actually one of those things where if Babe Ruth doesn't get two points, we don't win. And he knew that on the 10th take, and he, was, uh, he came and uh, rose to the occasion, and by far the greatest uh, day in his life on a golf course. And to this day, his name is still engraved on that trophy. Is that right? That's correct. There's a big bowl, and the winning team's uh, names are engraved on it. You know, it's kind of like the Ryder, uh, the sure. uh, Stanley Cup. And they, uh, if you look for the one year it was, you see Babe Ruth, and it's, it's pretty cool. I've seen it. Uh, the one year I was down at the New Jersey State Golf Association headquarters, and they happened to be the winning team that year, so they hold the cup, so they have it displayed in their uh, office. And uh, so I, I went up and I could see his name. I took a picture, but it was so shiny, the cup, the picture didn't come out good. Uh, one of the great struggles of Ruth's golf career was distance and accuracy. He could allegedly just mash the ball, but he had very little accuracy. And there's a series of quotes, and these are sprinkled throughout the book. But in this order, it, it, I, I think it kind of paints a little bit of a picture, and it's, it's, I kind of laughed at it. Babe Ruth in the 30s said, and you wrote, he lamented, I must sacrifice distance for accuracy. But then his longtime Yankees roommate Jimmy Reese says, 
He had no control. They said they shouldn't charge him green fees because he never used the course. And to that point, when he played Pine Valley in 1937, had a great first round. Second round, he gets a little confident, hits it into the woods, can't get out. I think he pencils in a 12, and he's trying to hit out of the woods. He says, I don't need to know where the green is. Where the hell is this golf course? Uh, and Gene Sarazen in 68. Babe Ruth was a slasher who tried to hit everything 300 yards. He hit the ball a mile but didn't know where the hell it was going. And then Detroit Tiger Eldon Auker said, Babe Ruth never hit a golf ball 300 yards in his life. So all these quotes together, it just it creates this wonderful picture of, as you've said several times, just this everyman golfer who struggled on the course just like we all do. Yes, that's true. Very tempting to hit the ball as hard as you can, right? I mean, who doesn't want to hit it as hard as you can? And he had a series of all different uh, golf professionals that he would take lessons from or get advice. And, uh, you know, basically they told him, you know, you're not going to be accurate if you keep flashing at the ball. And, you know, for a while there, he was, he listened. And uh, later on in his career, he uh, did. But the 300 yard distance back then, it was written like, uh, you know, like he hit a 300 yard drive every time he hit the ball, you know, and really wasn't true. And I, my favorite guy I talked with was Eldon Walker from uh, the old Detroit uh, Tiger submarine pitcher who played with Ruth in the, during spring training all the time. And, and I called him up one day. He lived in Florida. And I asked him, and he was very adamant that he never hit a ball 300 yards in his life. Let's end on Ruth's legacy. Obviously, there are so many clubs, much like George Washington slept here. Clubs say, you said this earlier, Babe Ruth played here. Uh, Leewood Golf Club, where he was an honorary member, still holds the annual Bambino Invitational. They have a, a Babe Ruth room in the men's lounge. But his legacy goes a lot deeper than that. And I think, based on the book, part of it is tied in with Sammy Bird, who was nicknamed Babe Ruth's caddy. Uh, he would be not on the golf course as caddy. He would come on as a late-inning defensive replacement for the Babe when they both played for the Yankees. Uh, what can you tell me about Sammy Bird? This is this is a very interesting character in the history of baseball and golf. Yes, absolutely. Uh, well, Sammy Bird was a young uh, phenom that the Yankees had, and but his problem was he played basically right field where Babe Ruth played, but uh, so he was his apprentice. He had to sit there and watch him. But Sammy Bird was a great golfer, uh, probably the best golfing baseball player ever, and shows up into spring training. And you know, Babe Ruth was uh, you know was considered the best guy on the team. And here comes this brash rookie who did not brag about it and kind of took advantage of the Babe and. He, uh, they, his teammates all talked him into a match with this kid, and he brought him out on the golf course, and Sammy Bird beat the pants off him, as Ruth said. And Ruth paid up the bets. You know, everything was, a, you know, they all played for money or caddy fees down there. But Ruth was a gambler, and he liked to play for more money. And Sammy Bird was a... Back then, to make money, you hustled, and he was a hustler. And he would play to pay for whatever money he wanted. And every once in a while, Sam, you know, he'd always beat the babe. And But Sam was smart enough to go in the tank and, you know, lose some holes to either lessen what Ruth owed him at the end or actually flat out lose a match. So the babe could walk around thumbing his money saying, you know, I beat the kid today, you know. And uh, that was the small price of doing business uh, for a golf hustler. And the rumor is that Sammy Bird made more money in gambling on the golf course against Babe Ruth than he did on his Yankee contract. And he did that for years. And it went on for years. And what... Like you said, he was a smart guy, and he knew how to massage the ego and let him win a few times. It just went on, and 
well known. But, but Sammy Bird uh, was sat there and watched the Babe, uh, the, the Babe Ruth swing, and the Babe taught him to tuck the towel uh, to keep his arm tight when he's swinging. And Sammy Bird took that onto the, the range at the golf course to keep his arm in, and it developed this what they call connection. It's, I guess if you go out and buy golf books, we learn about that's one of the golf theories of golf swing theories is called connection, and it comes from Babe Ruth uh, through Sammy Bird. But Sammy Bird ends up golf professional tour. He ends up uh, joining the, the tour. He leaves baseball because golf is a little more lucrative to him. He got hurt, actually. So he goes, he becomes a club pro, plays in the, the, the tours, uh, does very well. Uh, I think he had a fourth place finish in the Masters one year, uh, was runner-up in the PGA one year, and uh, you know made a good living as a golf pro. And uh, but that is the most famous thing is he took the Babe Ruth swing and brought it to baseball. And, uh, you know, Ruth taught him about swing playing and uh, keeping your arm tight. And that's where we get this connection theory through Babe Ruth. Right. And so Sammy Bird, who you mentioned he played in the Masters, he's, I believe, the only player, the only person to play in both the World Series and the Masters, which is incredible and will probably never happen again yeah but, that, that is true but you wrote that bird also kind of passed along all this to jimmy ballard who was the golf magazine teacher of the decade in the 1980s and so here's babe ruth's ideas being passed on to literally one of the best teachers of the 1980s 40 years after babe ruth dies yeah ballard uh, grew up working for Sammy Bird, so that's his connection, and Bird, you know, passed on stuff to Ballard, you know, Ballard added a few of his own things, and he ends up having his pupils win many major tournaments. Tom Weisskopf, was he one of them? I don't quite remember. There was Uh, four guys that won uh, major. Hal Hal Sutton, Sandy Lyle, uh, Curtis Strange, all won won majors under under Ballard's coaching. And interesting thing is I, I, I emailed him a few times, uh, tried to get a phone. I got a phone number to call his driving range or his academy and never returned any calls to me. So I couldn't get any real uh, direct stuff, but a lot of stuff is it's, it's written uh, in, in uh, a lot of books about the Babe Ruth connection with Ballard and Bird. Well, it's a heck of a story. It's a heck of a book. Before I let you go, Doug, anything else? I know we've covered a lot, but anything else you want to talk about the Babe or golf and baseball or anything else that we haven't touched on at all? We were talking about uh, Robert Kramer's book, Babe, The Legend Comes to Life. That's definitely the number one book, but if you're looking for more, I have a top five for you. How's that? Fire away. There are so many great Babe Ruth books. There's a lot, and I read a lot of them. And my top five are, you know, Babe the Legend Comes to Life. And the one nugget that uh, Mr. Kramer gave me for my book that he couldn't use in his, I think that's pretty cool, was he always heard that Babe Ruth uh, buried his putter in the green. But he could never find out, verify where it was, you know, which club it was. And... Shortly before he passed away, and I was corresponding with him, and he said, here's one I didn't use in my book because I could never verify it. He buried his putter in the green at Siwanoi, which is in in Westchester, New York, and he was asked never to come back to the golf course again. So that that was great. My other books I liked the best was The Big Bam by Lee Montville, Mm -hmm. and uh, we talked. Lee Montville also wrote the book. Uh, about the mysterious John Montague, which is another great book about that character who was involved with that famous match with Babe Ruth. Uh, so, and I like Babe, uh, Bonsai Babe Ruth by Robert Fitz. Uh, it's about 
his uh, tour of the Orient. Uh, the baseball players put together a team and they toured the Orient. It was a big deal. And he did play golf over there. There's a lot of golf stories in that book. The book Tie and the Babe by Tom Stanton is about a famous three-match fundraiser war effort that Babe Ruth and Ty Cobb played each other. And My Dad the Babe by Babe's uh, daughter, Dorothy Ruth Perone, his uh, biological daughter. He had two daughters. One was adopted when he remarried. And uh, a lot of great information and stories about Babe Ruth in her book. There is some unfinished business with my book, uh, stuff that I, I couldn't verify that I've heard rumors about, and I'm still working on that. So maybe there'll be a, a, a revised edition. But uh, I've read a lot that, you know, he played in the first uh, Bing Crosby clam bake. Ah. And I couldn't prove that and disprove it. It's written every spring. You read about it. They, you know, it's like an annual story. And, and I don't think, I think they're confusing that with this other event that he played with Bob Hope and Bing Crosby, uh, another fundraiser during the war. And I, I just haven't come across anything where he played in the first clam bacon. There's a lot of stuff about the clam bacon. If Babe Ruth really played in it, you know, it would have been all over. Uh, people take liberties with pictures. You know, they see a picture of him teeing off Bing Crosby's and Bob Hope stand next to him, and they're like, no, he's playing in the clam bake. So that's one thing I, I'm still working on, and there's a couple other minor ones uh, we don't need to discuss. But if I come up with some answers, uh, maybe I'll have a, a limited edition uh, revised book. The second edition. Again, that's Babe Ruth and the Scottish Game Anecdotes of a Golf Fanatic. It's available on Amazon. It's also available soon, as soon as the website's fully up and running at metropolitangreenkeeper.com. Doug Vogel, the golf course superintendent at Preakness Valley Golf Club in Wayne, New Jersey, and probably the foremost turf pro authority on Babe Ruth and Babe Ruth's golf career. Thanks so much for coming on Off the Course. Thanks, Matt. This was a lot of fun. My thanks again to Doug Vogel for taking some time to step off the course. If you're a baseball fan like he and I are, or if you have a baseball fan in your life, his new book, Babe Ruth and the Scottish Game, is a tremendously fun read. My thanks to Aquade Solutions for their continued sponsorship of the series, and my thanks to all of you for listening to all the podcasts on the Superintendent Radio Network. New episodes of Beyond the Page, Greens with Envy, Off the Course, and Tartan Talks, right here every Tuesday. Our June issue is online now, featuring a great cover story by Lee Carr about American Dunes in Grand Haven, Michigan, where every penny of profit helps fund the education of children and spouses of U.S. soldiers killed or injured in combat. It also includes a Judd Spicer feature and a Tim Morgan column about being bilingual on the course. You can read the whole issue online at www.golfcourseindustry.com slash magazine. And you can read more industry news and notes in our fast and firm email newsletter delivered every Tuesday to your inbox. Sign up online at www.golfcourseindustry.com. Golf Course Industry is produced by Guy Cipriano and me, Matt Lowell. Our columnists are Tony the Tiger Great, Terry Buchan, Henry DeLozier, Bradley S. Klein, Tim Morgan, and Matthew Wharton. We have some top-notch regular contributors, too. Tyler Bloom, Trent Bouts, Lee Carr, Ron Furlong, Judd Spicer, John Torciello, Anthony Williams, and Rick Wolfel. Our publisher is Dave Zai. Our intern is Jack Gleckler. Our sales team includes Russ Warner and Andrew Hurricane Hatfield. Jim Blaney designs the magazine. Lori Scala and Caitlin Sellers make sure everything goes where it should. Avril Braden and Christina Warner make sure you all receive the magazine. Kelly Antle make sure we all get paid. Michaela Dodrell handles production. Irene Sweeney does more than anybody will ever know. Tom Bauman, Patrick Briand, Anna Kolar, and Cody Minnick make up our IT team. They really deserve a good round or two out of the course right now. Thomas Vidmar handles our classifieds. Our president is Chris Foster. Above all else, we could not do what we do without you. Thanks so much for listening. Holy umpire, he was wrong all along. Good and strong.
me some peanuts and cracker jack. I don't care if I never get back. Let me root, root, root for the home team. If they don't win, it's a shame. For it's one, two, three strikes, you're out at the old bar. 